Good morning. My name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's good to be with you all this morning. We've been making our way through a summer series we've been calling Prayers of the Bible. And I have the privilege this morning of opening up to Acts 4 and looking at the prayer for boldness. It's helpful to us because it shows how the early church responded to opposition and what our God does for his people to sustain us. And although the prayer begins, is, is actually captured in Acts 4, the story actually begins in Acts 3. Peter and John go to the temple, and a lame beggar asks them for alms. And Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but what I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the lame man starts walking and leaping and praising God. And with that, a kids' ministry music classic was born. Right up there with other kids' ministry bangers like Father Abraham, Jesus Loves Me, the B-I-B-L-E, and John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. <laughs> this little light of mine had my whole kindergarten class ready to fight Satan. <laughs> but as a result of this healing, a crowd forms around Peter and John in the temple, and Peter seizes the opportunity to preach the word to the crowd. And Acts 3 captures that sermon. The rulers of the temple don't like that, so they seize Peter and John. And the next day, the pair is put in front of the council and questioned. Peter, being filled with the Holy Spirit, preaches to the council. They say, stop. Peter says, you're not the boss of me. And finding no way to punish Peter and John, the only option they have is to shut them up by threatening them and letting them go. Now, this is a turning point in the early church and a turning point in the book of Acts because up to this point, the church has faced no opposition. But from this point moving forward, talking openly about Jesus would be risky. Fulfilling Jesus' command to be witnesses would put their lives in danger. And that's where our passage picks up. Starting again, let's read it, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. So after a standoff with the council, the first place Peter and John retreat to is their friends, also translated as their own or their own people. And this is not a throwaway phrase. The phrase implies a distinction between the people Peter and John retreated to and the people that were on the outside. They were a collection of souls that found themselves as distinct. And they were so intimate and so connected with each other that when they gathered together, they looked around, they said, these are my people. These are my own. See, the gospel doesn't only save you. The gospel drops you into a community of like-minded saints throughout all of time. You are saved from sin and into community. And this helps explain why this is, that this is where Peter and John go to after the confrontation with the council. Because when we have news to share, we generally share it with the people that are closest to us. And for Peter and John, that was the church. And so we see right from the outset that we aren't meant to carry the weight of our own troubles ourselves. You can imagine the excitement and the fear and the anxiety that must have been coursing through Peter and John at this point. And they didn't just keep it to themselves. They reported it to their people. And some of you here might be carrying weights and burdens of fears or anxieties or worries or uncertainties. Maybe just walking around 
with a lot of grief and disappointment and sadness. Carrying doubts about the promises of God. That's you. This passage reminds us that it's not just you and Jesus. It's not just you and your family against the world. In God's grace, he has provided for you a people, a people that are so close and so intimate, that care for you so deeply that when we gather together, we feel the comfort of being home among our own. And I know this level of community doesn't, doesn't happen overnight. It grows over time, but it's worth the pursuit. And this reality of Christian community plays itself in a very simple and beautiful way. Hearing about the obstacles that, that Peter and John faced, it produced the same reaction in everyone there. It was impromptu prayer. Look at what the text says. First half of the next verse. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Hearing their report, they lifted their voices together. The word for together here is the same word for of one accord. Luke is emphasizing the unity and the oneness of this community. So when he says together, he's not just saying in the same place physically. He's talking about the same place emotionally, mentally, spiritually. They are all collectively sharing the weight of the events of the past two days, and they all agreed on what was supposed to happen next. They needed to pray. The church is united in its need and its dependency. They heard what they were up against, and they didn't scheme and strategize a solution or a response or game plan their defense. They saw what they were up against, and their immediate reaction was that we need help. So they prayed. And this, this, is, this is tough for us. Because when I'm in trouble, the answer I need is just a Google search away. We can literally search, what should I do when I'm threatened by the Jewish council? And Google will have ideas. Because Google always has ideas. The world around us is never short on solutions. Podcasts and articles and influencers, all with answers to all of my questions. Heavy things happen in our lives, and so we go to all of these different sources of wisdom or information, looking for something to fix it, looking everywhere to but God for help. And I wonder if God is in heaven saying to us, like he did through the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19, should not a people inquire of their God? God inclines his ear to our prayer, but we keep him on the bench. Because we'd rather take life advice for, from a post that we saw on Instagram. The Christians here in Acts 4 pray like it's a reflex. They don't go to anywhere before they go to God. And so we see them bringing their concerns to God. Logistically, what was probably happening was that they were all gathered together. One was speaking and all were agreeing. This is what we would call corporate prayer. And here's a definition I found for it. Corporate praying is prayers offered to God in the hearing of other believers who agree with and affirm the prayers. And this happens all over the place on Sunday morning, from the stage to the classrooms in the hub and the back of the sanctuary. But it doesn't just happen only on Sundays. It happens at lunch or in community groups, in Bible studies. Whenever two or more Christians are gathered together praying, there is corporate prayer. And this passage shows us that an outworking of the unity that we have in Christ is our collective expression of praise, thanksgiving, and needs together. The church prays together, and that's anything but passive. 
one person lifting up all voices to God. That means when we are praying together, we aren't just listening to one person pray. We're listening, and in our hearts, we're saying, yes, that person speaks for us. That's, that's corporate prayer. In the face of the first obstacle, obstacles and opposition, we'll see in Acts, the early church was unanimous in its response. They called out to God together. And for good reason. Let's pick it back up by rereading all of verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. The way they're addressing God here is intentional. The way they address him is highlighting a particular aspect of his character that was needed for their situation. They call him Sovereign Lord. So when we talk about God being sovereign, what we're saying that is that God has absolute authority. And what follows are two sections that describe the extent of that sovereignty. And the first is right here in verse 24. God is the sovereign creator. He made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. The logic is pretty clear. If you made it, it's yours. And since God made everything, everything is his. And because of this, he has the power and the authority to do whatever he wants. And the reason they go here is because that's exactly what's being challenged. Look at the exchange between Peter and John in the council, Acts chapter uh, 4, verses 18 through 20. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather, to, rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. The question that's presented here is who is Peter and John going to submit to? In other words, who's the authority? And this prayer is the church collectively saying that God is our authority. Our God is sovereign. And if he wasn't, there'd be no reason to pray. The fact that God is sovereign is the foundation to our prayer. And when we lose sight of this, we tend to treat prayer like it's only therapy. It's just our way of processing the things that are happening around us. And I want to be careful here because there's certainly a therapeutic aspect to it. It's healing to lay down our burdens before God. It reorients our perspectives. It calms our souls. But it certainly isn't only therapeutic. When we pray, we are entreating the creator God of the universe to flex his power and authority and do something. And we see this all throughout the Bible. Moses prays and God relents from punishing the Israelites. Joshua prays and the sun stands still in the sky. Elijah prays and rain stops. Elijah prays and rain comes. Hezekiah prays and God sends an angel to wipe out 185,000 of the opposing army. And just so we don't think that it's just a coincidence, Isaiah 37, 21 says God did it because Hezekiah prayed. That's causality. Hezekiah's prayer caused something to happen that wouldn't have happened if he didn't pray. That's what it says in James 4.2. You do not have because you do not ask. Is it not the implication of this text that there are some things that don't happen because we haven't prayed for them? In God's infinite wisdom, he has decided that one of the means by which he goes to work in the world around us is through the prayers of his people. It's true. Prayer shapes us. 
but it also shapes the things around us because it moves the God that shapes the things around us. And this breathes so much vitality into our prayers because there's nothing that God can't do. If you were to, if you were to go into the preschool kindergarten class and ask any one of those kids what they wanted for their birthday, you would get bombarded with all kinds of crazy things. I heard one kid ask for an entire amusement park. <laughs> they want things that don't even exist. Rainbow unicorns, Batman submarines, and ninja dinosaurs. Just random combinations of things that they like. Because to them, anything is possible. All they got to do is ask. You know what my wife wants for her birthday? A new planner. So how do we go from rainbow unicorns to planners, right? Amanda knows that we don't have rainbow unicorn money. That's not our tax bracket. <laughs> she knows we have limits and asks accordingly. We only have so much money or space or time. So our requests are constrained by our own limits. Our God has no limits. So our prayers don't have ceilings. But to be clear, there are guardrails. There are guardrails to our prayers. J James goes on in James 4.3 and says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, Your kingdom come, your will be done. So before he teaches us to pray any personal request, he says that everything is subservient to the will and purpose and glory of God. Those are the guardrails. But within those guardrails, there's no limit. So we can ask for anything because he can do anything. God is sovereign, so we pray with guardrails, but no ceilings. Now that statement just divided the room into at least a couple different groups of people. Because there are some that hear that and say, amen. They've experienced it. They've prayed for something, something unlikely, something big, something difficult, and God did something big. And so when they hear that, they say yes, amen, and nod in agreement. And there's another group that hears what I'm saying and then starts scrolling through all the things that they've asked for, all the things, all the times they've prayed, and nothing's happened. No healing, no reconciliation, no job, no spouse. Jesus, teaching on prayer in Matthew 7, says this. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God always gives good gifts. So if it feels like he's withholding something that you're praying, it means it's either not good, not a good time, or he's got something better. And let's be honest, that's a, that's a tough pill to swallow. Right? Like, why would he not want to heal my dad? He would get a ton of glory out of it. It feels like a slam dunk. This is a hard thing to accept. 
But when I hear things about God that I, that I have to trust to be right despite feeling like they're wrong, what helps me is, a, is an Old Testament sentence from Abraham to God when Abraham was bargaining over Sodom in Genesis 18.25. He said, in resolved trust in the character of God, will not the judge of all the earth do right? We can rely on the character of God to be good and for him to do good even when it feels really bad. Because we aren't the authority. He is. The church in Acts 4 collectively acknowledged this. And it was the foundation of their prayer. And that's just the first section of the prayer that shows the extent of God's sovereignty. In verses 25 through 28, we get the second section. And we're just going to take this piece by piece. Verse 25. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage in the, in the people's plot in vain? Here, the prayer is quoting King David in Psalm 2. And it opens with a question. Why did the Gentiles rage in the people plot in vain? It's a simple question. What's the point of resisting a God that controls everything? And they continue with this quote and say this in verse 26. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And when they say this, they stop and they leave off the rest of the psalm. Because they see that this psalm, what this psalm is prophesying is being connected to what they are experiencing right now. Verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. See, the word for here is extremely important because it tells you that an answer is coming. An answer is coming to the question that was asked in verse 25. Why do the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? And here's your answer in verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. The reasons the Gentiles rage and the people of the earth conspired in opposition to God was because it was God's plan for them to do so. So how sovereign is God? He's so sovereign that even his opposition is in his hand. The point that they're making is clear. Opposition is part of the plan. God didn't send Jesus into the world expecting him to win everyone over and then panic when the people didn't like him and then scramble to come up with plan B. The cross was always plan A. There was no plan B. Just let that sink in for a moment. It was always God's plan to send his son to take on our sin and to die for it. It was always God's plan to make him who knew no sin to be sin so that we can be the righteousness of God in him. Since before the foundation of the world, that was always the plan. Every lash from the whip, every nail, every insult, every wound, every bruise, every thorn was planned. So God can show us the seriousness of our sin and the extravagance of his love towards us that he would stand in our place and suffer for our sins. That was always plan A. The crucifixion of Jesus wasn't a wrench in God's plan, it was the fulfillment of it. Opposition is still part of the plan. And these Christians knew it to be true. And that leads directly into their request. Verse 29 through 30. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. A few weeks ago, Pastor David unpacked the prayer of Hezekiah from 2 Kings 19. And there are some clear similarities between that prayer and this one. 
In both situations, there are enemies and threats. And each prayer was offered to God as a result of those threats. In both prayers, there was a recognition of the authority and the sovereignty of God. But where this prayer deviates from the prayer of Hezekiah is right here in verse 29. Hezekiah asked for deliverance. Here, the early church asked for boldness. They just acknowledged that God could do whatever he wanted to do. And with that understanding, they could have asked for anything. They could have asked for weapons to defend themselves or a safe place to hide. The power to, to turn invisible and then preach and then vanish. Our imaginations could go wild with the things that could help them feel comfortable while preaching Jesus. But they asked for none of it. I think it's because they didn't see themselves as the exception. They knew that God's plan and God's people will always be opposed. Resistance, obstacles, persecution, opposition, it's all just part of the job. Jesus said, Jesus said it was, John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will, keep, they will also keep yours. They were not the exception. They weren't going to be the Christians that figured out a way to preach Christ and not make enemies. They weren't going to be the first generation of God's people that discovered a way to stay faithful and safe. Risk, opposition, threats, danger in their minds was all part of the job because it was all still part of the plan. So they determined to face the opposition rather than hide from it. So comparing this prayer to Hezekiah's prayer, we see that there are times we should ask God to deliver us from trouble. And there are times when we should ask God to strengthen us for it. Now, all throughout the book of Acts, we see Christians bravely doing incredible things. Boldly facing down persecution and insults, pain, all to make Christ known. And my, my thoughts, I turn inward and I think, well, that's not me. I'm naturally a shy, socially awkward introvert. I don't always know the things to say or how to say them. You can ask my wife. I was a shy kid. When I was in our young adults group at church, I remember hearing a story of a Christian, a Christian that we knew that preached the gospel to the person making his sandwich at Subway. And by the time they got to the end of the sandwich assembly line, the guy was saved. And I remember hearing that and thinking, well, that's, that's not me. <laughs> I don't have that courage. I'm not that outspoken. I'm not that fearless. We see Christians being outspoken about Jesus, and our thoughts turn to ourselves and think that that boldness is not me. And this week, as I was just thinking about this, what became clear is that it wasn't them either. If it was, they wouldn't be asking for it. They prayed for boldness because they needed boldness. Two months prior to what we have in Acts, Peter is denying Jesus and Mark is running naked through a garden, both out of fear. This is why this prayer is encouraging, because it shows us that Christian boldness is not a personality trait. That some of us have and some of us don't. Boldness is not about us. It is a gift from God. Not only that, look at how they're asking for it. 
They're asking God to continue to grant them the boldness. It shows us that it's not a one-time thing either. The church knew that at any moment their hearts could give in to the fear and intimidation. At any moment they could fold and crumple under the weight of their threat. So they were totally reliant, totally dependent on the grace of God to fill them with the boldness and courage when they needed it. And to, and to continue doing it each time they needed it. This helps me not feel like a failure when I get nervous before talking to someone about Jesus. The direct application of this would lead us to consider the areas of our lives where we're afraid to speak up. Maybe you need boldness to have the conversation that you need to have with a neighbor or a coworker or a family member, or boldness to speak up about something someone is doing that it's wrong. This passage shows us that we can go to God in our weakness and ask for help. I also think the implications of this passage expand more broadly. Because a lot of the things that we struggle with are because of fear. Right? It can get hard to live generously, not because we're greedy, but, we're, but because we're afraid of not having enough. Or we're tempted into bad relationships because we're afraid of being alone. Afraid of change, so we put off making decisions. In all of those instances and more, we can go to God for boldness in the path of obedience. And as my wife and I were talking about it, we had the thought that if we can't think of any situation in our lives where we feel the need for boldness, one explanation might be that our lives just might be too safe. You have to ask the question. Because if you don't have a need for boldness, maybe it's because you aren't doing anything scary. Maybe we've just settled into being comfortable. These Christians felt the need for boldness because they were walking the path that had laid for them and that God had laid for them. And sometimes the path that God lays for us takes us into scary places, into conversations with intimidating people or into worrisome financial situations or into loneliness. And on one level, this prayer is simply asking God for the boldness to do whatever God has called us to do. To walk wherever he leads us with boldness and courage. And what's really interesting about the word for boldness here in the New Testament is that it's also translated as confidence. And this gives us a hint of where this boldness finds its root. The prayer is asking for confidence that's needed to preach Christ in the face of opposition. So the question is, what type of confidence helps us face trouble? And this passage gives us the answer. Because the request for boldness is actually the second request in the prayer. The first request is so subtle that you can pass right by it. Right there at the beginning of verse 29. Look upon their threats. That's it. They're asking God just to see and consider their mistreatment. They aren't asking God to punish. They aren't asking God for retribution. They aren't asking God for retaliation. They're asking God just to consider and see what's happening. They're not trying to instruct God on what he should do or how he should handle their enemies. They have enough confidence in God to trust that he knows what he's doing and he'll do what's best. They know that the judge of all the earth will do right. A couple... A couple of years ago, I took, I took my oldest kid with me to Ralph's for a grocery store run. Uh, we went through the, the store. We got what we needed, 
and paid for everything and then started to leave the store. Uh, but when we walked through the front of the store, the anti-theft alarms started to go off. So I did what any reasonable dad would do in that moment. I turned to my daughter and said, run. <laughs> and without skipping a beat, she bolted towards the parking lot. And everyone around us started laughing. As we were walking to the car, I asked her, Grace, why did you run so fast? She said, Papa, I was, I was, I was scared, and I didn't know what to do, so I did what you told me to do. This is the type of boldness that I think is being prayed for. It comes from a childlike faith that says, I don't understand everything that ha that's happening, and in fact, it's kind of scary. But I'm going to do what you told me to do and trust you with the outcome. This is the Christian boldness that frees us up to speak the name of Jesus openly to our neighbors and coworkers and friends and classmates and teachers and subway employees. Disregarding the consequences and trusting God with the aftermath. Here, Christians knew they wouldn't be acting alone. They fully expected God to continue his miraculous healings. They understood that while they spoke, God worked. And it's still true. As we speak the words of God and openly talk about Jesus, God is at work in the hearts and the souls and the lives of the people around us. And people will be turned to Christ. So let's finish up in verse 31. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The place where they were, where they were praying shook. This is God showing his presence. This is God making it known that he's there. The result of this prayer is that God it gave them exactly what they were asking for. And I don't think it's just happenstance that in verse 27... It uses two words, gathered together, to describe the people of the world in opposition to Christ. And in verse 31, it uses those same two words to describe how the church gathered together in response. And was empowered by his, by his spirit to do the work despite their threats. And notice, it wasn't just Peter and John. It was the entire community. The entire community received what they needed for the mission God called them to. The faithful Christian community that is dependent on God is simply too much for the world to restrain. Their boldness prevailed against their threats. And it all started with two men going to their friends and someone probably saying something like, let's pray. The church gathered together corporately to receive what they needed individually to face the op obstacles in front of them. This is the good news for us. The God that saves us, gathers us together, and emboldens us by his spirit for the sake of his mission. From the earliest history of the church, this is what it's been. And by God's grace, this is what we'll be too. A people so confident in the God that we serve that out of that obedience, we take risks. Not tricking back from hard things because we serve the God of the universe that has the whole world in his hands. At this point, I think 
in a passage that has a church engaged in corporate prayer for boldness, I think it would be a massive miss if we didn't take time to do the same. So I want to just give you some time to just bow your heads and just close your eyes and just think of the, the things in your life that might require some boldness, some, the things in your life that might be just on the edge of scary, the things in your life that involves you or requires you to take some risks. Just think about those things where you might call out to God and say, I need boldness for this. And then we'll pray, we'll pray about them all together. So just take a minute and just, just think of some of those things. Lord, we confess that you are, you are sovereign and we are not. That you are infinite and we're finite, that you are strong and we are weak. And so there are things that are intimidating. There are things that you've called us into that might be a little scary. There are things that we might have to do where we're unsure what the outcome might be and, and it can be intimidating. We are confident in you. We're confident in your authority. We're confident in your wisdom and we're confident in your goodness. And so, Father, we, we call out to you and ask that you give us the grace and the boldness to do, to say, to go wherever it is that you're leading us. In childlike faith, knowing that we can trust you wherever you go. pray for the heart of every Christian here that, that we wouldn't shrink back from the things that, that are intimidating or, or scary, Father. We pray that in those moments, right when we need them, you'd give us the grace. Give us the grace, the boldness to do what you've called us to do. We pray these things in confidence, knowing that you're a God that hears, and you're a God that moves, and you're a God that acts you would do that for us now. Do that for us for the rest of the day, for the rest of the week, for the rest of our lives. We pray these things in your son's name.